Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. Uh, this is Bill Koch, sports writer for the Journal in our downtown studios in Providence. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday morning. We've dug out from the snow and, and made our way into the studio. Uh, we've done that because we wanted to talk some hoops, and uh, we were cooped up in the house all day Thursday. Uh, here with my co-conspirator, sports anchor and reporter at WPRI 12 and Fox Providence, Maury Hirsch-Gordon. Maury, how you living? Bill, I'm doing well. Uh, nice to see you, as always. Yes, I've, uh, I guess, tried to work off a little bit of that Thanksgiving diet that I had for a couple weeks there, and before you know it, it's going to be the Christmas and New Year's calories right back on, so uh, good time of year, uh, obviously, for food and obviously for hoops, and um, hopefully now we're getting into league play, and I say hopefully, um, yeah. and it should be good. All the teams are in a, in a good spot. Yeah, uh, you know, hopefully... Hopefully is the word because as we've seen, you know, very early in 2020-21 this season, and as we expected, honestly, uh, change is the rule here. Uh, and and we'll start with Providence along those lines. Uh, we are hoping that Providence opens Big East play on Sunday against Seton Hall, but we are not taking that for granted, and that's because of what's happened over the last week. Uh, this will be the fourth different scheduled Big East opener for the Friars. They were supposed to host Xavier last Saturday and UConn on Thursday. Both of those games were postponed uh, due to positive COVID tests among the Musketeers and the Huskies. The Big East decided they wanted to swap in DePaul for Thursday. DePaul had not played a game yet to that point. Uh, And no sooner than, I think it was about 18 hours later, DePaul had to pull out. They paused again due to positive COVID-19 tests in their program. So now... We get Providence against Seton Hall, hopefully, on Sunday uh, in Newark. And, uh, Maury, just, you know, the events uh, over the past week, the adjustments that Ed Cooley and his players have had to make, pretty much par for the course for this year, isn't it? Oh, no doubt. It is. Uh, He said, you know, normally Providence has an exam break like most colleges do the second or third week of December, however their end-of-semester academic calendar works. And this is how they're approaching this now 10-day opening between the TCU game and whenever they can start Big East play, hopefully on Sunday at Seton Hall. Uh, So they've had time to get in the gym and work on shooting. We know they need to continue to try to put the ball in the net uh, a little bit better, uh, especially from the outside going into league play. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to get guys healthy, stay in game shape, um, and then continue to bond. I mean, again, you can use this time maybe a little bit as a team bonding, as an extension of the out of conference as an extension of the preseason uh, because it was such a truncated out of conference schedule. So PC has time to get better. Uh, they have time to survey the league. They have time to even watch Seton Hall a couple games because the Pirates mm-hmm. are off to a 2-0 start. So hopefully they put this time to good use. I'm sure they did. Uh, and hopefully they can get started with an early win in league play. Yeah, really difficult for the Friars, I, I would think, uh, from the standpoint that I thought they played their best game of the season last time out against TCU, uh, and now that's going to be 11 days ago, uh, You know, which, which is difficult, I, I would think. It, it looked like they had found something against the Horned Frogs. They were building some momentum a little bit. There was some fluidity on offense. Uh, David Duke was rampant, You know, 28 points for the second straight game, and, and looked superb. Uh, he was named the Big East Player of the Week, and uh, you know just his stock continues to rise. Uh, couldn't happen to a nicer kid, Providence native, uh, really hard worker, uh, somebody you want to root for if, if you're a Friar fan. Um, you know, but 
Ed Cooley did make the point. He, he said, normally this is our exam break. I think I looked back, and, and last year they had eight days off. I want to say it was between the 9th and the 17th, let's say. Um, the one distinction he drew, and I think it's an important one, is normally you've got about 11 or 12 games under your belt before you have that break um, or before you start Big East play. You know, now it's only six. There, there is a little bit of limited experience here. Uh, I think they've done a, a decent job through six games of sort of finding who they want to play and how they want to play. We, we've seen Alan Breed really come on as, as probably that first guard off the bench. Um, we've seen them find a little bit of a role for Jimmy Nichols early, which is nice. Uh, you know, Greg Gant has obviously shown development in his game. Uh, you know, but I think it's Providence is very much going to be a mystery again uh, coming out Sunday uh, against the Seton Hall team, which, as you mentioned, Maury has been playing very well lately. The faces have changed, the roles have changed, Bill, but I think year after year we come back to the same theme, and it, and it really goes for all the teams in the state, maybe other than Bryant. Defense is going to win these games. I mean, Providence is 4-0 and they allow 70 points or less this season. I'm sure that number is is even better and higher when you look back the last couple years and, you know, for the large majority of the time that Ed Cooley's been back at home. Um, however, when you go to Seton Hall, that's a tough task uh, because this is a team mm. that can really put the ball in the net. Um, Sandro Mamashkvili? Mamash, Mamu... Mamu Kalashvili. Mamu Kalashvili. You got it. Um, on the third try. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. <laughs> um, uh, this is a guy that's like a 6'10 a point forward if you haven't seen him. Uh, he can put the ball on the, on the floor. Uh, he can distribute. I uh, don't exactly have right now what he's at this year. He's at 20 points a game even. Seven rebounds, uh, shooting it close to 50% from the floor. He's close to a 40% three-point shooter, three, 38%. So this is a guy where things run through him. And, and when we talked to Ed Cooley recently uh, on Tuesday, I believe, his last media availability. Correct, yes. Uh, you Perfect. know, I asked him about does it change a team's identity when you play through a big as opposed to playing through a guard? And last year they had Miles Powell, and right. the last four years they had Miles Powell, and many other great guards. And he said, no, not really. The only thing is Ed Cooley said he prefers to play a team that has a, a big guy because it's a little easier uh, to control him. It's a little easier to spot him on the floor, especially one on the perimeter, uh, like, Sandro, like Sandro plays. So I think you know when, when you look at, at Seton Hall as a whole, they have good guards. They play their. They play through a forward. I think he is going to create a lot of mismatches uh, for Nate Watson. I don't think PC has the size to guard him. They have the athleticism. They have the length, but I don't know if they have quite the size where you can put a smaller defender on him. Um, but it seems like Ed Cooley uh, likes his team coming into this game. They've played well, like you said. Uh, TCU is obviously their best game, best win to date. And um, it should be a hard-fought battle. These teams played two really good games last year, and they always seem to play good games in the Big East. Uh, I think what you're getting at is they can't necessarily guard him with A.J. Reeves and and give up four or five inches. For sure. You're probably going to have to challenge Greg Gant, Jimmy Nichols in this game, maybe even Noah Horkler in this game. Um, you know, this is this is a time where you're going to find out what Providence really has at the four spot. Um, you know, and, and this is one of the most difficult matchups that they're going to have all year at that position. Uh, Mamu Kelashvili is playing at an All-American level uh, at this point, and Seton Hall has won four straight. Uh, you know, we saw them earlier in the year lose at Rhode Island. 
Um, then they lost to Oregon on, an, on a neutral court. And since then, they've won four in a row. They, they got going with an overtime win against Penn State. They had a breather against Wagner. And now, as you said, 2-0 and in the Big East. Uh, Thursday night, a 70-63 win at Marquette, a game that they led by double digits with eight and a half minutes to go. Almost let it slip away, and then Shavar Reynolds made a big three-pointer inside the last minute to pull that one out. Uh, another big development for the Pirates on Thursday was Bryce Aiken came back, uh, the Harvard graduate transfer. Uh, he uh, projects to be a big piece in that backcourt, a veteran guy, a guy who can handle the ball, who can score it a little bit, shoot it a little bit, uh, had played 12 minutes in that game. He was rusty from the field, one for six. You, you might expect that was his first game back. And really, he hasn't played a lot of basketball over the last couple of years. Um, you know, last season at Harvard, only played seven times. Um, you know, missed a, a significant portion of the 2018-19 season to start out as well. He, he's really battled the injury bug, but this is a quality player. He's a top 100 guy, a four-star recruit, a New Jersey kid. You know he's going to want to show out for Seton Hall. So you are catching them at a tough time, and you're going to have to bring your best if you're Providence because this is going to be a tough start. Yeah, I think the way that Seton Hall continues to stay atop the league like they were last year as co-Big East champs is kind of dependent on how Bryce Aiken plays. Um, And luckily for Providence, they're playing Seton Hall now where maybe he's not still at 100%, still not, you know, completely, um, you know, Feels comfortable in the in the yep. in the Seton Hall offense, yep. um, despite Seton Hall obviously being two and zero, and it looks like you know they're they're still going to contend for the Big East. But I think there's a whole nother level that that Seton Hall can reach if Bryce Aiken's the player that he was coming out of high school and and what he's shown, you know, at times during his collegiate career at Harvard uh, before Seton Hall. One other thing I wanted to mention with Providence, sure. Um, is the importance of finding a secondary score outside of David Duke, mm. uh, like we mentioned, and obviously outside of Nate Watson. The combo's been great. Um, I think they've taken their games to another level. When you look at Nate Watson, you know that you know he was injured last year and uh, really wasn't himself. Uh, but this year, he's clearly at 100%. Runs, runs the floor tremendously. Mm. Uh, I didn't think for a guy that's 6'10", maybe 250, 255. I mean, he's cleaning up misses... On on transition fast breaks, you know, after guarding a defender on the opposite block, uh, so he's been great. But when you look at who is right behind them, I think that's where Providence has room to grow. Whether it's AG Reeves, whether it's Jared Bynum, they need another player uh, in double figures. I think some of the best PC teams that Ed Cooley's had, and he said it himself: the point guard spot scores. Uh, you know, you look yeah. you look on down the lineup and. Uh, yeah, the Chris, last couple Chris years. Don, Vincent Council, Kyron Cartwright. That's right. They're all they're all there. And Jared Bynum showed at St. Joe's his freshman year. He can shoot the three. He was a thirty-four percent three-point shooter. So you know, fine. That's average. Nope. That respectable. But zero for seventeen this year. Um, hasn't really found his his groove on the court offensively for PC. And I think I think that's what they're missing. And then you know you look at AJ Reeves, and I think that's. That's what we've been talking about for as long as he's been at Providence. Maybe outside of the, his, the first half of freshman year when he really came out and, and shot the ball well. But it's can he be consistent? Can he find other ways to score outside of the three-point line? And, and Bill, to me, it's can he not worry about his offense so much? It's, 
And Ed, Ed talked about it on Tuesday. Most recently, he said he's done a better job of getting deflections. He's better, done a better job on the defensive end. Right. He needs to be able to improve those parts of his game, work on those, work on those parts of his game so that you know, the offense can come. You see a layup in transition. You see a dunk. You get to the line. You see a ball go through the rim. I think that's where a guy like A.J. Reeves can build that confidence. When you're just focused on offense, I think it takes a big hit. And it takes a big hit for a Providence team that's going to rely on their defense. It, you need to play your way into the game sometimes. And, and that's not always going to be through scoring. That was the point that Ed Cooley was making. Uh, I think it is a good one. Uh, you can generate offense off your defense uh, because that allows you to get out on the break and, and find a little more space. Uh, in terms of scoring PC point guards, I, I wouldn't want to leave out Bryce Cotton as well, obviously, who might be the prototype for uh, what Ed Cooley is looking for. A really good shooter. Um, someone who is tireless, uh, someone who could play 40 minutes a game and, and, and seemingly not drop off in his performance levels. Um, you know, Providence looking at Seton Hall, uh, and then their next three games will be at Butler, home to DePaul in a rescheduled game uh, you know, that was sort of shoehorned in there on the 27th. Uh, Providence had a gap between the 23rd and the 30th. Uh, they want to avoid games backing up into February. Um, so they shoved DePaul in there and then home to Butler uh, before the start of the new year. Um, interesting stretch, I think. I, I think those games, you, you would expect Providence to be favored against DePaul. I think at Seton Hall and the two games against Butler, I think those are separation games. If, if you're finishing third in the Big East, as the coach is projected, uh, you're coming out of that no worse than 3-1. and one. Um, If you're going to be in the middle of the pack or, or somewhere – you don't want to be um you're coming out of that two and two one and three uh providence though i I think they have a good opportunity here starting on sunday uh and then playing those next three you come out of that four and oh you're really making a statement and and i think there is a chance for them to do that no there is you know you go on the road you if you can pop seton hall like you mentioned you know with butler twice yes you go to butler first um but they won there but last it, year. They won there last year. It builds confidence. Uh, and similar to last year, as I pull up the schedule, they, they crushed Georgetown at home to start the season, gave them a little breathing room, gave them a little life, uh, found their mojo after that Texas game, and then they went on the road to DePaul and to Marquette. So two early road games last year in the Big East they took care of. They won both games by one point, so you know it's going to be right. uh, a tough matchup against both teams. But Yes, if you can pop Seton Hall and then take care of your business, you should be in good shape early on. And it's so important to get out ahead um, so that you're not relying on six straight wins to end a season. You're not relying on a seven-game win streak from late January to mid-February. So, uh, yeah, if this Providence team can be 3-1 and one, uh, and look good, I think then they'll, they'll be in the top three or four of the league. Uh, another team starting conference play here Friday night in the state. URI hosting Davidson. Uh, that game's at 7 o'clock on ESPNU. Uh, national tip, I, I would imagine, Maury, you're going to be tuning into that one. I, I know I will be uh, from the couch. Home studio, home office, uh, home courtside. Home everything. Yeah, whatever it is <laughs> at, at this point in 2020. Um, you know, URI hosting the Wildcats, a, a team that uh, has given them some problems in recent years. Uh, last year, you know, really landed a body punch on URI in terms of you know what would have been NCAA tournament hopes with an overtime win at home uh, down the stretch of the season. Um, you know, team that runs a, a really intricate motion offense and uh, a team that's coming off a, a pretty rancid loss to Charlotte at home and, and figures to be a little angry, 63-52. Um, 
game where Davidson was nine for thirty-four from three. Um, you had a, a basically had no performance outside of Hunjun Lee and Kellen Grady. Um, they were really the only two guys who could find anything on offense. It's it's not a great spot to be playing a team that that just isn't that bad, frankly. Um, you know, but if you're you or I. You've you've tested yourself for this. You've prepared for this by playing a difficult non-conference schedule, an ambitious non-conference schedule, one that you hoped would put you in NCAA tournament contention. Uh, and, and as I wrote for the journal uh, today on Friday, Maury, this is a chance to see what we've learned. It is, no doubt. This is a team that that's, was picked one spot behind Rhode Island, but we know and we've seen in the out-of-conference the way that they played in Maui, this Davidson team, that this is a team that easily can be in the top three or four come season end. Um, they have the height, they have the athleticism, and, and they have the smarts, they have the coach to do it. Um, when I look at this, te- this Davidson team, Bill, they're sort of the Wisconsin of the A-10. They're tall, they're long, they're composed, they're poised. They have a great coach, and a lot of teams in the A-10 do. But they're similar in, in pace of play. So yep. when, when you look at their length specifically, they start 6'3", 6'5", 6'7", 6'9", 6'10". Right. Off the bench, 6'3", 6'5", and then 2 at 6'8". And they don't, go, they don't go 9 deep, but they usually play 7. Maybe they'll sprinkle in an 8th. This is a team that's long. We saw Rhode Island have some issues against against Wisconsin. Obviously, Davidson uh, isn't, isn't at the level that Wisconsin is, but you can draw some comparisons there from the length that they play with and from the, the pace of play. They like to slow things down, play on their terms, and if they're hitting the three, the three is the big wild card for Davidson, then they're a really tough out. But I think Rhode Island has a couple opportunities um, in ways that they can take advantage of Davidson. I think they can get out and run. I think they is a little bit more athletic. Um, whether it's in transition with Fats Russell and and Jeremy Shepard and uh, the likes, or um, I think if you can continue to move the ball quickly on the offensive end in the half court, um, you know, and slash and get by defenders, if they can take advantage of their athleticism and play good enough defense, there's a reason why Rhode Island is a, is a five-point favor coming into this game. Uh, URI coming off a 68-65 loss to Western Kentucky uh, last weekend, a game that they were right in all the way down to the end. Uh, Charles Bassey came up with a big offensive rebound with about 20 seconds left and, and tipped it back to make the difference for the Hilltoppers. Uh, that was the last of what we think are going to be seven non-conference games for URI. They, they could try to stick another one in there at some point, but it looks like they are done uh, at 3-4. and four. Uh, In terms of Ken Palm, right now, as I look at it, all seven of their opponents were in the top 100. Uh, Boston College is right at number 100. Uh, but otherwise, you, you had Arizona State, San Francisco, Seton Hall, Wisconsin are all in the top 70. Uh, Maury, I, I wonder, you know, just looking at the, that group of games as a whole, those seven games, what did we learn about URI, and, and what do you think they accomplished? They can clearly play with, with many teams in the country. They can compete at that level, uh, which is the top of the A-10, and the teams at the top of the A-10 are top 25 teams this year, and, and that's the level that Rhodey can compete with, compete at. Um, I think one thing we learned is the depth is going to play a big, a big role for them, and sometimes it can be... Uh, a downfall, you, you know, guys might not be able to get into a rhythm, but um, you know, w- when you have the depth that Rhodey has, they can overcome foul trouble, they can overcome COVID sickness, they can overcome a lot of things, injury, just normal injuries throughout the course of a season. 
I think the depth is the biggest thing uh, th- that we learned, that this team has nine or ten guys that they can rely on, anyone in a certain spot. They haven't had the consistency from everybody for all seven games, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Fats Russell, whether it's Shepard, whether it's um, you know one of the Mitchell twins, Antoine Walker, but all of DJ Johnson, all of those players have popped. All of those players have had games that, okay, if you put that all together, right. then you're cooking with something. Then, then you're cooking with gas. So... Um, you know, I think the depth depth is the biggest thing, and and then we also learned about some individuals and what spots they can play in, what spots they've shined in, and what spots you know you probably don't want to don't want them to be in. So uh, before we get into a little bit too much there, I think it's I think it's a good thing that. I think it's good what we learned about Rhode Island with with their depth. I think they tested themselves, like you said. A um, couple more wins would have put them in position where at five and two. If you then have an exceptional A-10 slate, then you could be in the at-large conversation. That's obviously not the case, so it's going to be Atlantic 10. Uh, it's boom or bust now. Yeah, I think Western Kentucky was a separation game for them. And, and obviously Boston College, a, a game that you know I understand Boston College is an ACC team and, and whatnot, but it's probably not one that you can lose if, if you're looking towards March. Uh, you know that that's going to be in the bad loss column uh, at some point. Um, you know I look at URI and, and I look at the Western Kentucky game in the first half specifically. Um, you know and and they just they play in spurts. It, it's it's inconsistent to this point, and I understand a lot of that is due to the roster turnover and and trying to work in so many guys into the rotation. Um, you know, but I guess I I thought a team with veteran guards like this wouldn't be as prone to maybe those inconsistent stretches. Um, you know, and I look at guys like Jalen Carey and, and Jeremy Shepard, and they're both over 23% in terms of their turnover rate, which means they give the ball away once every five possessions. Uh, you know, they start off against Western Kentucky. They're one for 10 with five turnovers. They follow that up going 8 for 11 from the field. So there is some offensive proficiency there. Um, You see it in spurts, uh, but you just don't see it often enough over a full 40 minutes. I I thought San Francisco and then later on against Seton Hall were probably their two best games. From from tip uh, from tip to horn, um, you know, but we just didn't see that against Wisconsin or against Western Kentucky. Uh, Wisconsin obviously a step up in class. Western Kentucky a road game. Um, you're hoping that that maybe you're going to have more consistency on familiar ground at the Ryan Center. Uh, Maury wanted to go over a couple things about the URI lineup. Uh, they are dealing with some injuries at this point. Uh, Fats Russell is playing through a sore right heel. Um, you know, not really sure specifically what that is, but you're talking about a guard whose whose best attribute is his speed. Um, you know, and if you slow him even a half step. Uh, and certainly a full step, um, you're looking at someone who, who is going to be limited in certain ways from doing what he can do. We, we've seen you know, over his first three years how disruptive, how explosive he can be, uh, you know, and you're just hopeful that, that maybe a little extra rest here can get him back close to 100%. Uh, URI will be without Makai Mitchell for the rest of the season, uh, suffered a left knee injury uh, in the first half against Western Kentucky, and, and Maury, actually, you spotted this uh, 
uh, on Twitter the other night, his mother, Maria, uh, tweeted out the diagnosis. Uh, according to her, he's going to miss four to six months and, and ultimately have surgery. Um, you know, and, and that's probably your number one bench guy in the front court who, who was coming off. They'd, they'd settled into decent roles there. Uh, he's backing up his brother, Mikel, uh, you know, sort of has the skills to play either the four or the five. Uh, you know, you could see it at times. The ability is there. He was a four-star recruit, obviously, a top 80 kid. Uh, those guys don't just show up in Kingston all that often. Um, you know, so, Maury, I, I wonder what you think uh, in terms of how those injuries are going to affect you or I going forward, and, and specifically with Mitchell losing him for the season. Yeah, the spotlight's now back on Jermaine Harris, like it was when he came out of high school, another four-star kid. Uh, top 100, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, top 100. So it's going to be up to Jermaine Harris to, to be able to fill that role, and 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 then how URI defends without fouling. It's been it's been an issue in the front court. Um, they've used all three: the Mitchell twins and Jermaine Harris. Now they're down to two at the traditional center spot. Um, <clears throat> good thing is, I think Jermaine Harris has started to show some signs of of actually being confident on the floor and taking the ball hard to the rack and. Um, not to say he hadn't done it in his first two seasons, but not this early on in the season. He understands he's a junior. He understands what David Cox expects out of him. So I think, you know, with the loss of Makai, I think Jermaine is, is going to have to step up. Um, and then David Cox also talked about, with without Makai, how other lineups go. And, and I think he's going to play a little bit more small ball. Uh, and he talked about that. I think there's going to be a lot of three-guard lineups, maybe even some four-guard lineups uh, mm-hmm. at the time with, 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 with some bigger guards if you, if you want to call a DJ Johnson or maybe a Malik Martin, uh, a, a stretch three or a stretch four. But we're going to have to see. I don't think you can do that against Davidson uh, on Friday night. But um, I think that's the way the, the rotation shakes out. And then they're also getting a big addition uh, in a guy named Alan Beatrand. Yep, Towson transfer, Alan Beatrand. Uh, he's an academic junior. And uh, with the NCAA granting a blanket waiver for all transfers earlier this week, uh, that makes him eligible for the rest of this season. Uh, according to the NCAA rules uh, that they've made in these COVID-19 times, everyone receives one free academic year. So what that means is that Alan Bretrand will be eligible to play for URI through the 22-23 season. Uh, so he has the rest of this year and two more full ones to go. Um, you know, he was a third-team All-CAA pick last year – with Towson, uh, 13-point-a-game scorer, pushed 39% from three-point range. Um, somebody who is a bigger guard at 6'5", uh, as David Cox said when he was on with us on Thursday. He's got that North Philly mentality. He's a tough kid. Um, I think he played at Roman. He did. Played at Roman Catholic, which is a, a Catholic power in the city. Uh, has produced some really good players. Lamar Stevens and, and Tony Carr are two guys who folks might have heard of. URI was recruiting them. They both ended up at Penn State. Tony Carr was a second-round pick, uh, an early entry into the NBA draft. Um, so Beatran coming out of a program with some pedigree uh, and coming in at the right time if URI is going to look to reconfigure its lineup and, and have to go smaller. No, for sure. He can put the ball in the hoop. Um, you know, when I talked to him back in May when he – when he transferred to URI, he said the big pitch was that he want, you know, URI wants him to be the focal point of their offense. That might not be this season. We didn't expect him to play uh, because he, he hadn't played yet. But now with this blanket waiver, um, you know, even with a Fats Russell on the floor and even with a couple other offensive pieces, he's just going to 
continue to to give other teams a headache in terms of defensive game planning? Who are you going to try to slow down, and who are you willing to allow an open shot on the perimeter? And if that's Beatran, he's proven he can make the three. He's proven he can do well in the paint, uh, and and he's proven to be able to to pass the ball a little bit. I haven't seen him play great defense in the the little bit of tape that I've watched. Uh, David Cox continued to harp on that, saying, offensively, we have the talent. We have the threats to play well, uh, to score high 70s, 80s if if we need to. But it's going to rely on their defense. Their defense, like Providence, is going to... really determine how how well this team can play. And, and if B-Train can bring uh, that tough North Philly swagger um, on the defensive end uh, and help jumpstart Rhodey's offense, then I think he's going to be a great addition because he he's going to add a little bit more offense than a Malik Martin. Right. Um, maybe a little bit more consistency than a DJ Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um a little shorter, but a little stockier guy. So I mean, I think he's a he's a perfect combination between those. Um, and again, like we say, URI's been. I said URI's been in in some foul trouble late. They they've play, they like to play nine or ten guys. And in a season with COVID and with some other injuries, now they're back to ten. And that, and that's the way that David Cox has liked to play this year. What you hope is that when you bring a new player in, your system, your culture uh, at that end of the floor is established enough where maybe it rubs off on them a little bit. And, and I think you know, whenever they bring in someone, particularly guard, uh, because since Dan Hurley got here and, and continued into David Cox, they've done a good job of, of guarding the perimeter. Uh, you know, annually they, they've been good in terms of three-point defense. Um, you know, right now, uh, opponents are shooting over 30% from three, 30.3, uh, you know, which, which doesn't happen often. Last year it was 29-7. Uh, 2016-17 it was 29-5. They were fifth in the country. Uh, no one shot over 33.5% against URI from three since Jim Barron left, uh, and that was in 2011-12. So you get an idea of, of what sort of perimeter defense they're capable of playing, and they're going to need that against Davidson, uh, you know, a team that loves to chuck it from deep. Um, if there are no changes or additions to the URI schedule, this is going to be their only game until December 30th. Uh, that's when St. Bonaventure comes here to the Ryan Center. The Rams actually open with a three-game homestand. Uh, they'll welcome St. Joe's after that. Um, you know, and, and, and again, like we said with PC, um, URI, a chance here, if they do want to finish in that double pie territory, top three, top four of the A-10, these three games to start off at home are separation games for them. Davidson is obviously the the toughest one, I think. Uh, I know St. Bonaventure's good. They haven't played a whole lot this year, and I haven't had a chance to watch them a whole lot. But, uh, yeah, if you can get off to the right foot on Davidson, then you have that long break if they don't play uh, to continue to to build momentum uh, into St. Bonaventure. And and I get there's not going to be six or 7,000 screaming fans at the Ryan Center this year, but home court advantage does – it still is a thing here in 2020, sure 2021. Um, you know, you don't have to travel. Uh, you can sleep in your own bed. You're familiar with the court. Whatever the case may be, your pregame routine, your your own locker room, you're, you're at home and, and you're you're just a little bit more comfortable. So, yeah, three straight games at home. You'd like Rhodey to be at worst 2-1 and one out of those three before you go to Richmond for your toughest game of the year, uh, maybe outside of St. Louis. So, uh, an opportunity like Providence here for Rhode Island to uh, get off on a good foot. Uh, and similarly, like in the Big East and the A-10, there's so many teams, it's hard to play catch-up. Yep. It's hard to dig yourself out of a hole. 
Uh, we saw that a couple years ago with this with with Rody. They ended on a four game win streak, but they were five and nine to start. If you can get out to a three and one, a five and two start. Um, then you're just setting yourself up for success, and these three games really give you that opportunity. Makes all the difference in the world. Uh, as we're learning in the northern part of the state with Bryant, uh, a team that's four games into league play already, their first three and one start since 2015 16, uh, after sweeping Wagner at the Chase Center this week. Uh, two really tough, gritty, hard fought games against the Seahawks. The first one, 74 62, the first time that Bryant's been held under 80 points this season. Uh, the second one, 81-75, Thursday afternoon. You had a big three-pointer in the last minute from Michael Green the third. He is the reigning NAC Rookie of the Year uh, and showed his class at that point when Bryant really needed him. Uh, they were in danger of letting a 15-point lead slip away in the second half. It was similar to what happened in their first set of league games against St. Francis Brooklyn. They blew out the Terriers the first night. They had a 16-point lead in the second half in that one and let it slip away. Did not happen this time. Uh, you know, A character win for Bryant, a good start for them in the NAC at 3-1, and one, and I think really a, a, a good indicator, Maury, uh, over 40 minutes on Thursday of just how difficult it's going to be to win back-to-back games in this league. Well, that's what, that's what the NEC is, and I know that the format is different this year due to the pandemic, so you're playing on back-to-back nights uh, against the same team, which is, which is extremely tough. But uh, the NEC is a wide-open league. It doesn't matter you know, if you're picked to finish first, picked to finish last. There's not a big difference uh, in talent between between the teams, and uh, we believe Bryant's going to be there at the top. But that doesn't mean a team like a Wagner, uh, who's sitting there at 0 and 3 this year, doesn't give them fits. And and they clearly gave them fits. Bryant was tested, uh, and Bryant came out with two hard-fought wins. They're three and one in the league quickly, which is which is really big. Uh, we've learned a lot about. Uh, you know the Bryant can score the ball. They obviously like to play fast, but now they have four, maybe even five proven scores on the offensive end. Mm. The defense has gotten a little bit better too the last couple games, which I like to see. So uh, this is a Bryant team that, that we know is going to be there at the end of the year in the NEC. Uh, they've proven it early on that that they can they can score well. They can win a couple close games. Um, and before they jump back into NEC play, I'm looking forward to a game on Monday afternoon against against the UMass team that's a middle-of-the-pack team in the A-10, but features one of the best players in the country. Yeah, Trey Mitchell, a uh, big guy for UMass. He looks every bit like a future pro. Uh, he was the A-10 Rookie of the Year last year. Uh, had 37 at LaSalle in a win earlier this week uh, and, and looked really smooth doing it. Uh, you know, had a 30-something against URI down the stretch last year. Um, you know, is the type of guy who, who Bryant isn't going to see in the NEC. Uh, I mean, let's let's be plain about it. 6'9", 6'10", can handle the ball a little bit. Uh, he's added the three-pointer to his game gradually over time. Uh, can score over both shoulders in the post. He, he's really a tough challenge for the Bulldogs. Uh, you know, but the type of game that Bryant is, is fortunate to schedule and, and should schedule just to stay sharp. Uh, it doesn't really matter if they win or lose it. The NEC is a one-bid league, as we all know. Um, you know, and it, it's good for Bryant to stay active uh, and, and to have a test like that against UMass. Um, you know, Maury, I, I look at Stony Brook and Wagner. I take those three games together, uh, the last three wins for Bryant, and I think that my biggest takeaway is they found a plan B here. We knew that they wanted to get out and run and force the tempo. We saw that from the opening night when they scared Syracuse. But I think it takes more 
to get through a full season to be a 20-win, a postseason, an NCAA basketball team. And I think we saw when Stony Brook decided they wanted to slow it down, when Wagner decided they wanted to play 80 minutes of pretty much his own defense um, and really slow the pace and, and throw a lot of bodies at the offensive glass. I think we saw Bryant sort of start to evolve a little bit here early in the season, and I think that's really important that they found that, that they found a way to sort of grind through a couple of these games in the mud. It, it, it's it's going to give you a lot of confidence going forward, especially in February and March when teams really dig in and lock in on your scouting report and, and really try to slow you down in those big games at the end of the year. Yeah, and I think it's part of – you know, Bryant learning to play with each other. I mean, you have a couple new faces in, in Peter Kiss and Chris Childs, uh, Luis Hurtado, and I know Melo Eggleston hasn't played a whole lot, but you have a couple new faces there. You have Michael Green the third, Charles Pride, who still are only six games, seven games into their uh, sophomore seasons as captains, learning new roles, learning you know how to lead teams. So you know, I think when you put all those pieces together, I think there's still a little bit of a learning curve, but they've learned on the fly um, and they've learned through wins. Even if you know there's some lessons to be taken uh, and improvements to be made, they're pulling out a lot of a lot of these games and. They've been in every game that they've played. The couple losses have been close, uh, and they've had some good wins. So they've got four players at 14 points or more. Um, again, they're going to shoot the ball well. They're shooting it almost 43% from deep as a team. Uh, for as many attempts as they take in transition, that's, that's pretty impressive. So, um, yeah, this Bryant team, again, the, the ceiling continues to rise and the expectations continue to rise. Um, and Jared Grosso has himself a good bunch. I think uh, you know, I'm a European soccer fan. I'm a Liverpool fan. I have been for about 15 years. Uh, going back to Steven Gerrard, great midfielder there, England captain, uh, future. And in following European soccer, the conversation that, that's around teams uh, who are trying to be elite or, or trying to save themselves from being relegated is who are your match winners? Do you have match winners in your side? Um, you know, Are there match winners among your 11? A, a guy who can take the game by the scruff of the neck and score a big goal or set up a big goal uh, or defend you know, defensive corners or whatever it may be. I look at Bryant and I just think they have a lot of difference makers. And, and I look at, you know, Michael Green pops up with a three-pointer against Wagner. That's a huge shot. Peter Kiss dominated the first game against Wagner after he went scoreless against Stony Brook. Charles Pride has looked great at certain points. Chris Childs is one of the best three-point shooters in the country. Hall Elijah's flirted with a triple-double uh, with 13, 10, and 7 in the second game against Wagner. I, I just look at this Bryant team, and early on here, obviously, only eight games in, but I see them as having a lot of difference makers at that level in the NECR in their roster, and, and I think that is just it's so important considering the style they play, the amount of possessions they have, there's going to be opportunities there for different guys every single night, and I think they have a lot of them. And when you look further down the roster, I think then they have good reinforcements off the bench, which is just as important. Whether it's foul trouble, whether guys have off games, it's they're really a well-rounded team. Uh, and one player we like to talk about here is Erickson Bands has really come on uh, in the seven games he's played since the since the game against Rick when he came in and 
Uh, I think he was six of nine from the floor, if I'm not mistaken, and, and really showed that that he can play at this level. Sure, Rick was a, is a Division three team, and I think Bryant dropped 138 on them. 138 but, to 83. But yeah. from that game, he's parlayed that into three games of 14, 15, and 18 minutes, respectively. He's shooting the ball 45% from the floor, and quite frankly, coming in, I didn't think he was going to crack the rotation like he has this early. Uh, obviously, the skill was there. He scored 2,600 points. He's the all-time leading scorer in Rhode Island high school history. But sure, so there's a couple injuries on Brian. He, he, he steps in, and, and, he, and he's, made his, he's made his mark. He's played some important minutes, too. He's not just playing 15 minutes of, oh, seven minutes during the middle part of the first half, and he's playing six or seven toward the earlier middle part of the second half. He's in there late in a... End of a second game of a back-to-back against Wagner yesterday. Um, not turning the ball over, making the right plays, playing solid defense. Uh, so as much as we know Bryant has the firepower, like you mentioned, Bill, at the top with three or four you know, really strong guys at different positions, they have the reinforcements off the bench, and it's also nice to root for a local kid. Yeah, Erickson Band's made a big jump shot in the first game against Wagner. It was from the right wing with about two and a half minutes left, or maybe three and a half minutes left. Wagner's making a run uh, trying to get it to a two-possession game, and he was able to stay step into a jumper and knock it down. Uh, you know, I, I think I think Erickson is, is a really good example of, of what fit can do. Um, you know, he fits their style. Uh, you know, I give Bryant credit for recruiting him and, and recognizing that he would fit their style. Uh, you know, I give him credit for not necessarily thinking, I'll just take a prep year and maybe I'll get better offers or, you know, maybe I'll hold out for this school or that school or whatever else. Uh, he took the bird in hand and, and went with it. And, and I think it's it's something that, you know, has worked out for both parties here through eight games. Uh, and, and you could certainly see that in that system, in that style, in that league, he has a future there. You know, that might not have been necessarily the case if, if he had waited on a prep year, gotten a year older, you know, tried to go play in the Patriot League or, you know, sneak into the 13th scholarship in the Atlantic 10, something like that. You know, everyone wants to play at the highest level, and and I don't begrudge them that. Um, You know, but I I think unless you get a chance to go to Kentucky, Duke, Kansas, you know, blue blood like that where you can get drafted off the bench and, yeah, you're the 11th guy, but you have a chance to play in a Final Four over the course of your career. Like, you, those are life-changing chances. You do that. Um but if you're at a different level of college basketball, the mid-major, the low-major level, find a place where you're going to play a lot and have a role and have a chance. And I, I think he's made an excellent choice, and I think Bryant did a really good job getting in on him, offering him, and getting him into their school. Um, you know, And I, I think Bryant is reaping those benefits now. Uh, they hope to do more at UMass on Monday. Uh, and from there, the rest of their schedule... I think they have a bit of a break before they host Central Connecticut. Um, but who knows? Because Bryant has been aggressive in terms of adding games. Uh, they've announced games with UMass Lowell, which they had to cancel. Northeastern, which they had to cancel. Um, took the Syracuse game at the last minute. Um, so I would guess that if Jared Grasso had his way, January 7th will not be the next time they take the floor after Monday. No, I don't think so. And, and they've only played a few a few games in the non-conference and uh, they have some wiggle room. So Phil Martelli Jr., the associate head coach, has done a great job in trying to get them the best game possible. And uh, teams that are uh, in the region, so it's it's not a, a burden to, to travel. So uh, I like this UMass game. I think the UMass game will test them. And you know, I don't want to you know guess on on who they potentially could play 
after UMass in the, in the non-conference, but there are some intriguing opponents in the Northeast region, True. even in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, that are just a bus ride away that they could play that are up games where they could test themselves, play teams in, in higher conferences uh, to continue to prepare and, and improve. So when they jump back into league play, uh, they're playing at a higher level. Uh, you're looking around college basketball a little bit elsewhere. Uh, Texas Tech and, and Kansas played a thriller Thursday night. Uh, you know, we've already started the, the Louisville-Kentucky skirmishing. They don't play for another week, uh, you know, but we've got Chris Mack and John Calipari taking shots at each other. I, I think that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit on the podcast last week with Nick Coit about, you know, Mike Krzyzewski maybe suggesting a, a nationwide pause uh, due to so many teams sitting out for COVID. Um, Nate Oates. Nate Oates. Coming at his throat. Firing and then, back at and, Coach K. And then apologizing. And, and then walking it back, thinking, <laughs> what did I just do? Um, I would imagine his athletic director might have told him uh, yeah. to do that. Well, hopefully, hopefully uh, he thought of it himself. Because Nate Oates <laughs> is, is, is not the type of guy to take a step back for anyone. Um, but I, I just, I think it's great that, uh, you know, we're getting into conference play here. We've got some action you know, nationally, we've got some high-profile games coming up. Gonzaga is trying to schedule Virginia. Um, that's a game that, that we hope is going to happen. Uh, Gonzaga was supposed to play Baylor, uh, you know, but that game was called off due to COVID-19. Uh, I think it was Baylor's program again, I, wa- I want to say. Um, you know, could have been Gonzaga. They've had COVID issues as well in, in Florida. Um, you know, so we just we continue to be sort of in this uncertain pattern where we're not really sure if the game's going to get played until it tips off. Um, we're sitting here right now on Friday morning thinking we're going to watch URI tonight uh, and we're going to have a chance to watch PC on, Saturday, on, on Sunday. All that can change in the next 24 hours, the next 24 minutes. Yep. Um, you know, but, Maury, I, I wonder, you know, just general impressions early, how you feel about the season so far, how you feel like teams have been doing from the standpoint of of this uncertainty and trying to throw games together like this i think it's great i think (laughs) it's obviously you you can't do this going forward but it's great when when a team like a rhode island calls up wisconsin hey your game was canceled we want to play a good game let's play together i think i think it just I think it just breeds teams wanting to wanting to play good competition, not shying away from good competition. I think when you look at it as a whole, I guess more to answer your question about about you know the feeling of college basketball and and now that we're a few weeks into the season, I, listen, teams are going to have to continue to grind it out. Teams are going to have to on both sides understand that that hey, we might get COVID, there might be an outbreak, there might be an outbreak with the team we're going to play, but we have to adjust on the fly. We're playing the sport we love. Uh, there is a season which we didn't know th- was going to happen. Right. Um, we all expected there to be. Um, but I think from, from our perspective, from the players' perspective, uh, from the coaches' perspective, I think we're all just happy that, that there is some sense of normalcy, uh, that, that there is a season. And um, hopefully it continues to be that way because you know the winter months have shown that um, – it can be it can be tough uh, uh, with COVID, but hopefully uh, there's going to be a vaccine that, that's coming around the corner, and uh, hopefully we can get some fans back in the stands. Yeah, we we started to roll out vaccines in America on Monday. Uh, we are very thankful to our frontline workers, um, you know, to to everyone who has fought against this pandemic. Um, you know, whether it be doctors, nurses, uh, you know, scientists who who were tasked with with coming up. 
uh, with something for this in, in record time. Uh, you know, so we are very thankful for those folks. Uh, the fact that we can even discuss having fans in the near future, uh, you know, I know they're doing that in some other states, not doing that here. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that decision. Um, did want to finish the podcast uh, with some condolences to a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Stone Freeman. He's a graduate student at URI. Uh, he's going to have a master's degree in communications. He's been a part of URI student media for about four or five years now. Um, you know, has been around the men's basketball program quite a bit. Uh, Maury, I know you've had a chance to, to meet and, and work with Stone uh, a fair amount. Uh, his father, uh, Big Ross, passed away earlier this week uh, due to complications from COVID-19. Uh, it's only 52 years old, leaves behind a wife and three kids, and, and was a a decorated uh, prison guard at the ACI. Um, you know, was one of the leaders in the women's unit there. And uh, you, you look at the outpouring for, for Russ on social media and, and the things that folks had to say about him and, and about his kids. And you, know, you really feel for, for Stone, uh, you know, so I know just on behalf of the podcast, wanted to send our condolences to him and, and to his family. And, uh, you know, we're thinking of you guys and, and hope you're well. For sure. No, Stone's a, Stone's a great guy. Uh, obviously synonymous with, with Rhode Island, having, you know, gone there as an undergrad. And I think he's still in grad school finishing up now. And yep. uh, whether it's play-by-play, whether it's color, whether it's sideline, I think he's kind of done it all from the student media and now professional rank. So uh, definitely a, a tough loss for, for his family, for our community, uh, for the Rhode Island community at large. Um, so may, may big rest, uh, rest in peace. And um, I'm sure Stone will continue to carry – uh, everything that Russ taught him uh, and continue to kind of live out who, who Russ was as a person. And, um, you know, that's, that's putting people, other people first. Uh, that's, that's putting a smile on other people's faces. And I think Stone, Stone does that. Uh, Stone did that when his father was alive, and I'm sure he'll continue to do that now that, that Russ is uh, up in heaven. Yep, it's, it's another reminder of, of just how difficult the time is that we're dealing with here. Um, you know, it is unconventional that this is a year that we're never going to forget. Um, you know, and, and I, I get the feeling that if we can make it through this, uh, you know, the, the other challenges in our life going forward, uh, you know, while they will be difficult at the time, uh, we're all going to have some solace in the fact that, that we made it through this, um, you know, and, and that we found a way to go forward. And, and for us, that means continuing to work, whether it's at home, in the studio, actually at games, not at games. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, found a way to get in here and do this podcast this morning. Um, you know, I thank you for that, Maury. Uh, you know, I want to wish you and your family a peaceful and happy Hanukkah season as well. Um, any plans on a big gift? Big gifts? Anyone? For anyone? For you? No, not right now. I think yesterday Yesterday was the eighth night of Hanukkah. Um, no, it was wasn't a big wasn't a big gift person growing up uh we always you know went to shelters and went to relief agencies to help others i think during that time and that's kind of how i was raised and um that's kind of how we always spent spent our hanukkah season so uh it was a great eight days and uh uh, now we're looking forward to obviously christmas and the new year so i want to wish you and, and your family as well uh merry christmas and a happy and healthy new year uh, and may we turn the page from 2020 uh, as, as hopefully things continue to look on the up and up. Amen. Uh, all right. So with that, folks, we bid you adieu for the week. Uh, we thank you all for tuning in and enjoy the games.